Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our lesson for this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. We're going to read what is perhaps one of, if not the most famous parables that Jesus told. And yet our sermon is not only going to focus on the parable that Jesus told, but he, he's going to foc- we're going to focus on the context and the individual to whom Jesus told the parable. Because therein lies the genius of Jesus' teaching is the lesson he taught this gentleman is a lesson for all of us as well. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of our Lord. When you hear a good neighbor or like a good neighbor, what's the first thing that popped into mind? Yeah, a couple of you said it. Maybe State Farm, maybe the jingle itself, maybe Jake from State Farm came into mind. That's usually what we think of, right? 
and there's a reason. It's because State Farm's decade-old campaign, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, has got to be one of the most brilliant marketing campaigns of all time. It truly is, to the point where you say good neighbor and you think of the company. Now, not to you know, throw any shade on our Geico friends or on insurance companies in general, but let's be honest. When we think about what it means to be a good neighbor, it's more than just Jake, right? It's more than the khaki pants, a red sweater or red polo. It's more than someone with a headset who's, you know, constantly smiling and, and there to take your calls 24-7, right? There's got to be more than that to being a good neighbor. But what, what is a good neighbor in real life? What, what does it mean to be like a good neighbor? I don't know, maybe you think of the person who lives in closest proximity to you. You know, the person whose house is right next to your house and who's coming over to take care of your cat when you're on vacation. Or maybe being like a good neighbor is that person who's in line in front of you at Chick-fil-A or at the coffee shop and they pay for your meal or your cup of coffee. Or maybe when you think of what a good neighbor looks like, you picture that friend or, or that person that you know who, who's volunteering and serving for really so many things in the community. They're on the HOA board, the PTA. They serve at their church. They're in the Rotary Club. They do it all. Is that what you think of when you think of a good neighbor? Well, here's my hope and here's my prayer for this sermon this morning and for all of you. Is that when you think of a good neighbor, you don't just think of Jake from State Farm and you don't think of all those examples that we just mentioned, but my hope for you is that you think of yourself, but not really think of yourself. You, you do think of yourself as a good neighbor, but it's because you don't think of yourself. You think about the best neighbor that you've ever had who has served you and loved you and how that neighbor has really transformed the way you think of all your neighbors. We're looking at Luke chapter 10. Again, it's, it's one of, if not the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. It's the story of a really good neighbor, the Good Samaritan. But we're talking about the context in which Jesus told this parable. Jesus was teaching and preaching in public as he did so often. And that's when someone came up and questioned Jesus it was someone who, well, wasn't what they or who they seemed to be. And they asked a question that was not really what it seemed to be. The gentleman was an expert in the law. And on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is revealing. The question is revealing because it says a lot about this man and more about this man and his relationship to God. 
While he was an expert in the law, while he was the community's foremost expert at what Moses said about the laws he gave, about the laws that the rabbis had created since then, while he acted as though he kept these laws and was tight with God, this reveals something about his relationship to, with God and well, that he was insecure. He, he wanted to know how he could get right with God, how he could be with God in eternal life. And so very naturally, he came to the conclusion that really all of us come to naturally about our relationship with God. What do I need to do? And I said, this is natural because think about it. That, that's how the whole world works. If you want to get something, you need to do something. If you want to pass the test, you need to study. If you want to collect a paycheck from your job, you need to punch the clock. You need to do the work, and you will get something out of that. And so very naturally, that way of thinking crossed over into his relationship with God, and he wanted to know, Jesus, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And I know what you're thinking. A group full of people who have maybe been Lutheran their whole life or who have recently gone through our foundations class and are starting to, you know, wrestle with this Lutheranism thing, you're all over this. Do something? No. No, you don't do anything. We know what the Bible says. We know that salvation is not something that you achieve, but it's something that God has gifted to you. It is by grace, undeserved, unconditional love that God has just given you forgiveness, given you eternal life, given you hope, given you salvation. No, 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 expert in the law, you don't do anything. But watch how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't jump down this guy's throat for all of his self-righteous, works-righteousness tendencies. He doesn't hit him up with some of that Ephesians 2 and tell him, no, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by works, man, so that you don't boast. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what we see is Jesus be rather gentle and reply to this man, this man's question of what must I do, with a question of his own. Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And of course, this man is an expert in the law, so he knows, and Jesus knows he knows. So the man replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what is most interesting, not just in Jesus' question, but in his reply. He said, you got it right. Bingo. He said, do this and you will live. I mean, because after all, that's exactly right. 
Jesus is exactly right. That shouldn't surprise us. But he says, love the Lord your God perfectly with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you will have eternal life. You will have heaven for sure. And that makes sense, right? Be perfect. Be like God. Then you don't need a savior. You can achieve and inherit salvation all by yourself. But this man was looking for a loophole, like maybe experts in the law do. He knew he, he didn't keep it perfectly. He knew what the law said, be perfect, love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly. But he knew that he didn't. And so he asked another question, a follow-up. He said, who is my neighbor? This past week, I was watching... Uh, ESPN top plays, <laughs> and they have home videos every once in a while. And this one was a, a home video of a three-year-old playing hockey, and he lined up the puck three feet from the net, and he went to go take a shot, and the puck moved 10, 10 inches, maybe a foot and a half. Didn't get even halfway there. So the three-year-old walked over to the goal and slid the goal over his puck. More seriously, spiritually, that's what this man was doing. He was looking to move the goal, to lower the bar, to find a loophole and think, okay, I know I haven't loved every one of my neighbors perfectly all the time. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? You tell me. And that's the genius of Jesus' teaching. Because even before the parable starts, he makes us wrestle with that question. You know what the Bible says. You might not consider yourself an expert in theology, but you know full well what the Bible says. That God wants us to love our neighbor, and that means everybody. And we go, yeah, 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 that's right. I love my family, I love my friends, I love my church family, and I love the city I live in. But then you think about loving your neighbor who has maybe been mean to you. And then you think about loving the neighbor who has not maybe been mean to you and wronged you once or twice, but that person that maybe causes the most misery in your life all the time. You think about the neighbor who is different than you politically, ideologically, racially, sexually. And you think about the neighbor who asks for your time, who maybe even demands your time, and it's an absolute drain. It's a drain on your emotional resources. It's a drain on your time. And you think, do I really have to love them all the time? And that's where Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He doesn't let this man off the hook either. And he does so by telling one of the most compelling parables that Jesus has ever told. You've heard it before. You know the name. You know the theme. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest 
happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Unpack the parable for a second. Why did they do this? Well, I'm going to give you three, maybe four cultural reasons. Two practical ones and a ceremonial one. We need to understand these reasons because the people listening to this story, the expert in the law listening to this story, would have known this. And we need to know this to help us wrestle with this parable, this familiar parable, maybe a little deeper. Culturally, you got to know that in these times, highway robberies were unfortunately all too commonplace. So why did the priests and the Levites move on past this? Well, there was a very real danger to themselves. The robbers who did this, who beat and bloodied this man, still could have been in the area, or this could have been a setup, something to trick them into helping, and and then they ambush them. They were looking out for their safety. The second thing is, is ceremonial. A priest and a Levite, well, they followed the Old Testament laws that said if you touched a person who is not your family and who is dead, you became ceremonially unclean. And that meant that, well, their afternoon wouldn't have been just inconvenienced, but it meant that they would have had to, well, quarantine for seven days. They would have been out of work for seven days. They couldn't have been around the temple or their family or their friends for seven days. And for a week, socially, everybody would have known that this Levite, that this priest, they didn't keep the law. So they moved on. Here's the third cultural thing to know. It's kind of basic. There wasn't hospitals at every exit in this time. There wasn't 911 where they could just call up and and then an ambulance would be right there to help them. They knew that if they didn't help this man, very likely nobody would. And that's what makes what they did a surprisingly great wrong. But it also is what makes this twist to the story a surprisingly great deed. What happens is a Samaritan comes by and helps this man. Very differently than the priest and the Levite, he stopped and immediately took pity on him. And here's the fourth cultural thing that you have to know. Samaritans did not like Jews. Maybe if you grew up in the church, you heard this story before, you you knew that, that Samaritans, Jews didn't get along. But do you know why? Do you know why they didn't like each other? You have to go back in history centuries back. What happens is the Israelites, the Jewish nation, was taken off in the Babylonian captivity. And while they were in captivity, most of the Jews got taken, but some Israelites still remained. And so what happened is those Israelites intermarried with neighboring nations. And then when the Jewish nation returned from Babylonian captivity, they looked around and they saw that their Jewish bloodline had been soiled. 
So they kicked the Samaritans north. When it came time to rebuild the temple, they wouldn't even let them touch it. When the temple was built, they wouldn't let them even come to it. And so when the Samaritans, who still loved the true God and worshiped the true God, thought, we're going to build our own temple and worship here, they said, that is apostasy and away with you. And so what you have going on here is a deeply complex relationship that goes back centuries. How can you think of this? Well, you might think of it like maybe Palestinians and Jewish people right now in the Gaza Strip. You might think of it in Iraq like Shiite and Sunni Muslims. You might think of it civil war terms of the North versus the South. You had a complex dynamic here of not just political, but religious, economic, and family ties where there was serious bad blood. These groups hated each other. Jews hated Samaritans so much that when they traveled north, they didn't just, you know, take the highway through Samaria. No, they went all the way around Samaria. And so the question is with this parable, first of all, what is this Jewish man and Samaritan even doing together on the same road? And you quickly pass that because the real question is, Why'd the Samaritan do it? Why did he stop and selflessly, sacrificially help this man? Why is it that he stopped? And just look at the degree to which he went to help him, giving him his own donkey, his own clothes, his own oil, his own money, paying for whatever he needed to help him out. Why'd he do it? We know this, that unlike the Levite, unlike the priest, he wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't thinking of even his own safety. He just got off his donkey and helped him. He wasn't thinking about his reputation and what other people would have thought about him if he became ceremonially uncleaned. No, there was nothing in this for him. He wasn't thinking about himself at all, just his neighbor. And so he stopped, and he loved him, and he helped him. And Jesus wraps up the parable with that. He said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? The answer is obvious, right? The one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, go. Go and do likewise. And now you see the point of the story, don't you? Jesus set the whole thing up because he knew, this expert in the law knew all of the laws that Moses taught. He knew all of the laws that the rabbis added. He knew exactly who his neighbor was and what he was required to do with his neighbor. But the problem, well, Jesus knew this. And he wanted the expert in the law to see this. Is that he interpreted the entire law, the entire word of God, through the lens of me, myself, and I. Of what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? 
I mean, after all, think of what his question is. He said, how can I gain eternal life? What must I do? He wasn't even genuinely asking Jesus a question to know and grow more. No, he was testing Jesus. And he was doing what? Scripture tells us he was seeking to justify himself. He was seeking to get an exemption, to get around a loophole, to have Jesus maybe move the goal for him a little bit, all so that he could get something out of his life. And that's where the dagger just sits in. Because as you look at this story, and you look at the expert in the law, it hits you that you know exactly what God's law says. You know exactly what God's word says to you about what a God-lived life looks like. I mean, let me just summarize our sermon series so far. Last week, we looked at a life of discipleship. You know that a life of discipleship looks like God's people gathering together God's word and sacrament in worship and in study every chance that they get. You know that. You know, week one, that a God-lived life is one of hospitality, and we defined hospitality biblically as a life of loving strangers. You know, here, week three, that a God-lived life, a life of a Christian, is one of service to others. And yet, how often don't we interpret all of that through the lens of what's in it for me? You know, sometimes we're we're too slow to help out. We look at the person who who needs our help and we wonder, ah, I don't know if I have time. We listen to problems that people share with us and we think, are they serious? (laughs) I have problems of my own. I don't have the emotional energy to invest in them. Either we're too slow, but the truth is, Very often, you're too fast. You're too fast to help out because you know what it does for you. Makes you feel good when you volunteer. It makes you feel a whole lot better and allows you to look across the aisle and look at those Christians who don't help out as much as you do and think I'm better than them. It looks good on Instagram. It looks good on your resume. Can I give you proof? Can I give you proof that it's so easy to interpret the word of God through a selfish lens? The proof is really in the pudding. The proof is really in the pudding of this very scriptural story. I've remarked a couple times about how this is perhaps one of the most well-known Christian stories, Jesus parables that that exist in scripture, right? I mean, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school, you have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, even if you have never been in the church, even the secular world, they know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. The interpretation is pretty clear. Be a good Samaritan. Do kind things to your neighbor. Don't be like the priests and the Levite. Don't be selfish. Be kind. And so if you've ever heard that, well, what your pastor or your teacher or whomever was sharing that with you was hoping that you would do is see yourself in the role 
of the Good Samaritan. That's me. You're right. I can be the Good Samaritan. And what we do is we misinterpret this parable to see ourselves in the role of the hero. But you're not that guy. You're not that girl. And neither am I. I mean, just look at this parable and look at it in the context of what Jesus said to the man after he understood the story. He said, go and do likewise. Go and do like the good Samaritan. Love like him. Love perfectly. Love selflessly. Love sacrificially. Love unconditionally. Do that. Go and do likewise and you will have eternal life. And actually, there's no wiggle room here. Don't just, don't just go and do it. You have to want to do it all the time. You have to want to love perfectly, love selflessly, love sacrificially, love unconditionally. And you can never hurt anyone emotionally, relationally, physically. You must always help people out emotionally, relationally, physically. There is no giving up on others. There is no seeking revenge or retribution ever when someone takes your money or takes your time or takes your things from you, you can never look to get it back. You can never ask the question, what's in it for me? You can never, not once, get going when the going gets tough. You must always serve everyone without any hesitation perfectly. That's the point of this. And then it starts to hit you. What the word of God starts to do is really, is really slam down on any self-salvation projects that we have, any ideas that we have that we can just per- pick a certain class or a certain, certain group of pe- people and call these people our neighbors and forget about everybody else. What God's word does is come crashing down on us and the law, the hammer of God's word drops on us and it beats us up. It leaves us bloodied and broken. And what we see is, ironically, we're not like the priests and the Levites who just sometimes don't get it right. We're the guy. We're the man who is on the side of the road, helpless, hopeless, bloodied and beaten, left alone on our own. And that's when Christ steps in. And you see that the good Samaritan (laughs) It's not us. It's our Savior and our God. He's the one who came and helped us. What's the good, the story of the Good Samaritan about? Well, let me rephrase the question. What's the entire Bible about? What's the entire narrative of your salvation all about? It is about Jesus Christ who came for you to help not just one person who is in need and on the side of the road, but to help everybody, to help all of humanity that was helpless and hopeless, lifeless and dead on their own. Jesus Christ got down off his high horse, his high throne of heaven. Jesus Christ got down off of it and gave us his robes, his clothes, the shirt off his back, his robes of righteousness. And that is what we see. We see Jesus Christ who did not consider some God, equality with God something to be grasped, but came and took on the very form of a servant. And having taken on the appearance of a man, he did what? He suffered even death on a cross. 
He switched places with you and took on your pain so you could have peace, took on your punishment so you could have righteousness, took on your sin so you could have forgiveness, took on death so you could have eternal life as a gift to you. That's what this story is about. Jesus, not asking what's in it for him, not wondering, well, would they do the same for me if I was in their seat? It's about Jesus loving perfectly, selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally, and giving that love to you. And friends, listen, this is the point of the story. That love does does not merely cover over all of your sins and all of your wrongs and all of your selfishness and all of the times you've been too slow to help out or too fast to help for the wrong reasons, but that love changes your heart. It changes the way we look at the end of this story. And when Jesus says, go and do likewise, because Jesus has loved us with all his heart, with all his strength, with all his soul, well, we can go and we can, we can love like him because he has given that love to us. He has given himself to us. And Galatians 2.20 tells us, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ in me. You know what their tagline was, their slogan before the very famous one now? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's been going on for decades. But before that, you want to know what their, their tagline was? State Farm, all you need to know about insurance. That was it. And that was a problem for two reasons. One, it was a lie. Actually, they didn't offer that much when they first start going. And so it wasn't all you needed to know about insurance. And they realized they kept having to refer their clients to other people. (laughs) And two, they realized it was selfish. (laughs) They realized that the tagline, State Farm, all you need to know about insurance was, well, all about State Farm. And so people thought, the marketing experts thought, how can we show strength as a company, yet also offer selfless service? How can we show clients we care while still being, you know, a competitive insurance agency. And what came out? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know what their tagline is, their sub, subline is today? They've been working with this for a few years. Surprisingly great rates. Have you seen the commercials? They're great. Go online. You can catch a number of them. What you see, though, is is everyone from average Joe's just having a backyard barbecue, like, wondering, like, what? This really is someone who cares for me, who remembers my name, who, who calls me up? To NFL MVPs saying, come on, I'm getting a special rate, aren't I? No, it's Jake from State Farm saying, these surprisingly great rates are for everybody. I highly doubt that the marketing experts were trying to do this. But they did it. They were incredibly biblical, incredibly theologically correct and Christ-centered with their taglines. And maybe we can take a page out of their book. 
No, we can't be perfect and neither could State Farm offering everything you need to know about insurance. <laughs> but we can be there. Like a good neighbor, we, we can be there and we can offer up something better than surprisingly great rates. We can give surprisingly great grace because it's surprisingly great love that has made the difference in our lives. See, the surprisingly great thing about the story of the Good Samaritan is that the Samaritan man did that for one thing, for one person. But the surprisingly great thing about your Jesus is that he did that for everybody. And when you sit there and you understand that, when you understand the immensity of Jesus' love, but also the intimacy with which he loved you, that impacts you. And, and we look at those words, go and do likewise, and we understand that that's the only choice that a, a love that knows Christ's love can do and go out and live from that and not for our glory. Before the love of God, to show the love of God and reflect that to a world that so desperately needs to see and hear and know that there is a Jesus who loves them. May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen.